welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today is January 9th, and today we're going to look at uh, Genesis 9. As a reminder, the format for the show is every day I read one chapter, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology briefly. Uh, The goal of this show is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's get to our reading now of Genesis 9. Genesis 9 says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature on of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. What we see in Genesis 9, 1 through 4, God's speech closely parallels Genesis 1, 28 through 30. There's two important changes that are introduced in these verses. First, the positive instruction to exercise dominion over the living creatures is replaced with the negative comment that they will fear and dread human beings. Second, the emphasis was previously on people's eating from plants. Humans are now given permission to, be, to eat meat. And while God now permits the taking of animal life for food, the animal's blood remains sacred and is not to be consumed as an acknowledgement that all life is from God. In verses 5 through 6, following his comments about the killing of animals, God addresses the issue of homicide. Violence by all flesh in verse 11 by man and animals prompted God to send the flood in Genesis 6.11 and Genesis 6.13. If human nature has not improved after the flood, how is violence to be prevented in the future? This legal enactment is the answer from his fellow man. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. This means that any animal or person that takes a human life will be held accountable by God working through human representatives. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And here is the principle of Italian, a life for a li lex Italian. That is a life for a life, and it's applied here. This measured response is preferable to Lamech's 77-fold vengeance. Human life is to be valued so highly that it's protected by this system of punishment because God made, in his own, made man in his own image. And so to murder another human being is to murder what is most like God and thus is an attack on God himself. In Genesis 9-7, what we see is God's speech ends as it began in verse 1, repeating what is said in Genesis 8-17 and echoed in Genesis 1-28. God wants humanity to flourish and not be destroyed by the violence of another flood. This positive view of population growth stands in sharp contrast to the Babylonian flood story, which ends with the gods taking measures to inhibit mankind from filling the earth. In verses 9 through 11, the Lord is outlining the covenant as he is now establishing with all living creatures, having mentioned it briefly before the flood in Genesis 6.18. This is the first covenant explicitly named in Genesis. A similar covenant is later established with Abraham and his descendants, as we'll see in chapter 17. Now, a covenant, we need to understand, formally binds two parties together in a relationship on the basis of a mutual personal commitment, with consequences for keeping or breaking that commitment. God makes this kind of covenant with a group of people by covenant with one another who represents them, everyone, everyone else then experiences the covenant by virtue of being included in the representative. Here the animals are included as well as Noah's descendants, showing Noah to be a kind of new Adam. 
emphasizing that the covenant is for all living creatures, the Lord states, there will never again be a flood. Now, as we turn to Genesis 9, 12 through 17, different covenants have appropriate signs or symbols linked to them. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham, as we're going to see in Genesis 17. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, as we see in Exodus 31, 12 through 17. On this occasion, God-designated sign is the rainbow, as we see it in Genesis 9, 13. Its presence when rain clouds are in the sky will be a visible reminder for God's everlasting covenant. And now it's not necessary to think that rainbows first began to exist at this time. Rather, God is saying that he will now use rainbows as a sign of the covenant. And now let's look at verses 18 through 19. And these verses uh, help us to understand uh, the flood story. And And it brings an end anticipated by the next two episodes. The reference to Ham's son Canaan in verse 18, it prepares for the events listed in verses 20 through 29. And the mention of people being dispersed over the whole earth in verse 19, as we'll see, is developed tomorrow in Genesis 10. Let's turn now and look at Genesis 20 through 29, the cursing of Canaan. This unusual episode, it provides an unexpected sequel to the flood story. After the flood and the new creation comes another fall by Noah, a sort of second Adam, in that he, like Adam, is father of the whole human race. It also anticipated similar activity by Lot's daughters after the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 19, 30-38. Noah's drunkenness and Ham's indiscretion, they result in contrasting announcements regarding the future of Shem, Japheth, Ham's son, Canaan. Now, let's look at verse 20. The reference to Noah as a man of the soil and his success in growing the vines, it points to a fresh start after the flood. Let's look now at Genesis 9, 21 through 28. Noah became drunk. Now, the brevity of the description of Noah's drunkenness, it's an indication of disapproval. Ham's actions are the object of serious criticism because Ham unashamedly looks on the nakedness of his father in the tent and then reports this to his brothers in verse 22. Let's look now at verses 9, 24 through 27. The designation of Ham as the youngest son, verse 24, is peculiar given that he is always listed after Shem and before Japheth. Possibly, for some unexplained reason, the traditional order of names does not reflect the birth sequence of the boys. Cursed be Canaan. Noah's reaction to Ham's action is to curse Canaan, Ham's son. This outcome has been clearly anticipated in the narrative for twice previously. It has been mentioned in each context unnecessarily that Ham is the father of Canaan, as we see in verse 18 and 22. Verse 28, the report of Noah's death, it continues the pattern throughout Genesis 5 to describe the total age and death of Adam and his descendants. Now let's get further into this. When passages from the Old Testament are used to justify or even condemn a modern practice, many respond with an all-or-nothing argument, something that goes like this. Well, if you're going to follow the Old Testament on that issue, why not follow it everywhere else? Build a rail on top of your roof, as we see in Genesis, or excuse me, in Deuteronomy 22.8. Do not mix seed in the garden, as we see in Leviticus 19.19. And execute blasphemers, as we see in Leviticus 24, 11 through 23. 
And this often intimidates us as Christians from appealing to the Old Testament. The dreaded all or nothing argument always is lurking around the next corner. Of course, we know that some believers choose to never appeal to the Old Testament, and their reasoning is clear. We live under the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, therefore, is obsolete or nearly so, according to them. And it may even help us understand the New Testament, the Old Testament, but its laws and its customs are a bygone time of another testament. But as we take a look at a closer reading of the New Testament, what it does is it describes a different reality for us. The Old Testament is not obsolete. It has not ceased to be God's word according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, and even Jesus teaches from the Old Testament. And, and so do the other apostles. Indeed, how can any word from God become truly obsolete? It may obtain fulfillment, but it can never become defunct. True, New Testament believers do not live under the Old Testament economy, but that doesn't render the Old Testament obsolete or nearly even so. And certainly the book of Genesis still applies to New Testament believers. In fact, it, it is still authoritative for Christian belief and practice as any truly Christian statement of faith demonstrates. And happily, Genesis 9-6 and its meaning and its authority and its application, it still determines Christian belief and practice and is essential for a healthy society that values and even protects human life. Let's read again Genesis 9, 5-7 to remind ourselves of what we're talking about here. It said, this passage says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Let's talk about the context of this passage in Genesis 9.6. The command in verse 6 for capital punishment, it occurs, we must understand, after the worldwide flood. This command affirms again that the pre-flood society was reprobate. As we look at Genesis 6-2, which says, Then the Lord saw, in the words of Moses the lawgiver, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually, as we see in Genesis 6-5. That's because society was given over to violence and murder. What we see in Genesis 6.11 and Genesis 6.13 is that, And the land became corrupted before God, and the earth was filled with violence. What began as brother murdering brother in Genesis 4.8 had become endemic. All flesh had corrupted its way on the earth, as we see in Genesis 6.12. And so the post-flood world needed a divine decree to restrain violence. And so, as the post-flood world begins, God blesses and even commands Noah and his sons. And most of the commands, they echo God's command to Adam to multiply and even fill the earth. And as one of the few survivors of the flood, Noah became another Adam, as we've been talking about, but with differences, we must understand. God's command to Adam came in the context of a sinless world. The commands came to Noah in the context of a sinful world. And although the animals were put under the authority of Adam and later Noah, God placed fear and terror on the animals to protect Noah and the family, as we see in Genesis 9, 
Now, God restricted Noah's authority over the animals in one particular way. Noah and his descendants must not consume the lifeblood of an animal, according to verse 4 of this chapter. And then, now, God turns to the lifeblood of man. God prefaces the command of Genesis 9-6, stating that he will seek those who take the lifeblood of man in verse 5. God will personally seek out and avenge those who commit murder. And God emphasizes his determination to seek by repeating it in Genesis 41-32, with the addition that he will even hold animals responsible. From every beast, he will indeed seek and avenge him for taking the life of man. And then God repeats it a third time for even greater emphasis that he will seek out and avenge murder from all mankind and from every individual man responsible. That is because such language about God's vengeance against murderers is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 9:12, David refers to God as the one who seeks out and avenges murder, like a title given to one constantly employed in seeking and avenging murder. Indeed, the godly pray for God to avenge murder and other injustices of the wicked. Psalm 10:15 says, "Break the arm of the wicked, and as for the evildoer, may you seek out and avenge his wickedness until you cannot find it any longer." When Joash murdered Jehodah's son, Zechariah, his last words in 2 Chronicles 24, 22 says, May the Lord see and may he seek and avenge. And now God gives a command to Noah not to give Adam a prohibition against murder. The Lord orders Noah in Genesis 9, 6, The one who sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. And the meaning here is straightforward. A murderer must be put to death. In fact, the command charges mankind with the task of executing the murder. By man, the murderer is to be put to death. And the reason given for the command is straightforward in verse 6. Because in the image of God, he made man. Now, mankind may kill and even eat animals as we see in Genesis 9-3. But man, because he's made in the image of God, may not be unlawfully killed or murdered. Now let's talk about the authority of Genesis 9-6. So we've talked about the context, we've talked about the meaning of Genesis 9-6, and it's pretty straightforward, but so is its authority. The context of, of this verse reveals its authority. As God gave to Adam the creation ordinance of marriage that still has abiding authority, so God gave to Noah post-flood ordinances, including capital punishment, that are still authoritative. God did not restrict these ordinances to Israel or to other nations. They are universal and intended for all descendants of Adam and Noah. In fact, the reason given for capital punishment in verse 6 is that it's permanent because man is made in God's image. As long as man is made in the image of God, this commandment is binding. And some of the laws of the Old Testament, particularly in the Mosaic Covenant, were temporary. They're meant for Israel and its particular circumstances. These laws are the dietary laws, the worship laws, but Mosaic laws based on the character of God, such as laws against murder or adultery or Mosaic laws based on the permanent relationship of people, such as children honoring their parents are permanent. Such commands transcend the Mosaic covenant as the Ten Commandments transcend the Mosaic covenant. And, and the commandments given to Adam and Noah, they precede the Mosaic covenant, continue during the Mosaic covenant and abide after the Mosaic covenant into the new covenant until the end of time. 
And later, the Old Testament passages confirm this for us. We see this in Exodus 21, 12 and Numbers 35, 16. He who strikes a man that, that he dies shall surely be put to death. And even the intentional killing of a slave merited the death penalty, as we see here in Exodus 21, 20. And if a man strikes his servant or his female servant with a rod, that he should die under his hand, he will surely be avenged. No ransom could, be ta- could take away the death penalty, as we see in Numbers 35, 32. Nothing, not even the altar, could protect murder, as we see in Exodus 21, 14. He was about to die without mercy, as we see in Deuteronomy 19.13. Now, murder polluted and it even defiled the land, and only the death of the murderer could deal with or remove the, the move it from the polluted land, as we see in Numbers 35.33-34. And the New Testament teaches us this. In Romans 13.4, it describes the, the civil magistrate as a minister of God, who Paul says does not bear the sword in vain for the minister of God, the civil magistrate he's talking about, is an avenger for wrath to the one doing evil. And the words bear the sword denote punishment, but particularly capital punishment, as a sword was an instrument of execution. And so speaking before Festus, Paul declared that he should be executed if he committed any crimes worthy of death, as we see in Acts 25, 11, which says, if I have done anything worthy of death, then I do not refuse to die. And so what Paul is doing here, he recognizes the appropriateness of capital punishment for certain offenses. In fact, even the thief on the cross who believed on Christ recognized the justness of his death sentence. But he said in Luke 23, 41, and we indeed justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. All scripture, both Old and New Testament, attest to the authority of Genesis 9, 6. Now let's talk about, as we talked about, the context, the meaning, the, the purpose of Genesis 9-6. Let's, let's turn and talk about the application. How do we take this and apply it today? The application of Genesis 9-6 has drastic consequences on Adam and Noah. This verse, along with Genesis 1-26-27, it establishes for us the sanctity of human life. God created man uniquely by breathing the breath of life directly into Adam and by making Adam and all mankind in his image. And since human souls bear the image of God, human life is sacred. The value, that is, of human life and of, and of the human soul is incalculable as we see in Matthew 6.26 and Matthew 16.26. And so the taking away of human life by murder, including those forms of murder known by their various euphemisms, such as abortion, euthanasia, population control, one-child policy, that is, family planning policy, and on and on, are not just human tragedies, we must say. They are a sacrilege. They are a direct assault and affront by God and to God and against the glory of God. And any individual or society that desecrates God's image invites the judgment of God. Contrary to secular societies that are always given over to sin and that routinely devalue human life as we see in Romans 1, this passage in Genesis 9-6 sanctifies human life and even dignifies every single human being. Because of the sanctity of human life, God ordains the ultimate punishment to protect it. And Genesis 9-6 does just that. 
But there are people in the pro-life movement and even some denominations that claim that capital punishment contradicts the sanctity of human life. That's tragic because this view stresses consistency. If we're consistently pro-life, then all life, even the life of the murderer, should be protected in that view. We should not pick and choose. All life means all life. And although Genesis 9-6 may seem inconsistent or contradict uh, the, the idea of the sanctity of life, in fact, it demonstrates we must understand the, sacred, the sacredness of life itself. The scriptures view murder as a, a contemptible crime against God and man that, can, that only just penalty is the forfeiting of the murderer's life. Any other punishment degrades the life of the victim. Any other punishment risks additional murderous ass, even by those serving a lifetime prison sentence. Any other punishment it reduces the heinousness of murder, endangering society by lessening its stigma. In, in a sinful society, this verse in Genesis 9-6, although a dreadful command, is actually a blessing from God because it furnishes the ultimate protection for human life. And so this sanctity, this protection of life are essential for a healthy society. And without these human life, it's cheapened, society becomes dangerous, and civilization regresses. Societies that regard life as sacred and protect life are safe, they're dynamic. Such societies reflect a virtuous people. Of course, the opposite is true as well. Those who can rejoice over reproductive freedoms that end in the murder of the most innocent human lives, even in the death of those who survive the abortionist grisly efforts, may certainly rejoice over the murder of those less innocent. Perhaps they can even rejoice over the voluntary death of the elderly to prevent them from overly consuming medical resources at the end of life. Perhaps they then can rejoice over the murder of those deemed politically dangerous or simply undesirable. How a society views Genesis 9-6 in its sanctifying and protecting of life is a sure barometer of the health or impending death of a society. Now that has a lot of application, especially for our day. I, I unfortunately, on this show, cannot draw that out. Be and also because we're also nearing the limit for this show. But, but there's a little bit more here to say, and I know this episode is going to go a little bit longer than 20 minutes we're going to go over 30 minutes, but stay with me. There's a lot here. In Romans 15, 4, Paul refers to the Old Testament when he says, For whatsoever things were written beforehand, they were written for our instruction, that through patience and through consolation of the Scriptures we might have hope. And so to Paul, the Old Testament was not a dead letter. In fact, it's written for instruction. That is the New Testament church's instruction. Paul instituted Christian belief from the Old Testament in Romans 4. He established Christian morals from the Old Testament in Romans 13, 8 through 10. And he found Christian teaching and examples from the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And of course, this is true not only of Paul, but also of the other writers of the New Testament. The Old Testament writers, Moses and the prophets, as we see in Luke 16.29 and Luke 16.31, did not serve just their own generation, but they served us, the New Testament, in the New Testament, in according to 1 Peter 1, 10-12. And so Genesis 9-6, in, in its sanctity and protection of life, is instruction for us. It was given to all mankind after the flood as marriage was given to all mankind after creation. 
It was reaffirmed throughout the rest of the Old and the New Testament. It was furnished to indicate God's value of human life. And it was graciously provided to protect all. And so God has blessed all people since the flood with the command of Genesis 9-6. Now, there's also one other thing that we see in this chapter that we need to talk about. In fact, we must talk about it. We can't end talking about Genesis 9 without talking about the rainbow. And that's because rainbows have come to be identified as symbolic of three principles. Promises, that is, in the the Bible, in Genesis 9, records God's promise to Noah that he would never again destroy all flesh with a global flood. Second, creation, folklore, and even regional legends position the rainbow a bit differently. For example, Australian, Aborigine, and American Indian legends, they link it to creation events. And the Chinese have a legend concerning the rainbow and the creation of their first emperor, Fohai. Bridges. The rainbow has been used to represent a bridge from Earth from humans to a brighter, happier place. For instance, Judy Garland's Somewhere Over the Rainbow represents connecting to a happier place. The New Age religious movement also uses the rainbow as a bridge. We also see the flag used in the LGBTQ movement. And the rainbow has been used as a sign of a new era and a symbol of peace, love, and freedom. And sadly, the the colors, as I'm mentioning, of the rainbow are even used on the flag for the gay and lesbian movement. However, the true meaning of the rainbow is revealed in Genesis 9, 12 through 15. This is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and, that shall, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. The, the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, First, the covenant of the rainbow is between God and man and the animal kinds that were with Noah on the ark. That's a promise that there would never be again an event that would destroy all flesh on the land. And as there have been many local floods since that time, this is obviously a promise that there would never again be a global flood to destroy all flesh. Scripture clearly states that there will be a future global judgment, but next time by fire, not by water as we see in 2 Peter 3.10. Some commentators on this even suggest that the watery colors of the rainbow, the blue end of the spectrum, it reminds us of the destruction by water, and the fiery colors, the red end of the spectrum, of the coming destruction by fire. Now, secondly, the rainbow is what we call a covenant of grace. In fact, we can say that it's actually a symbol of Christ himself. And while the secular world hears the account of Noah's global flood, they often accuse God of being an ogre for bringing this kind of terrible judgment on people. And yet the God of the Bible is a God of infinite mercy and grace. God told Noah to build an ark to save uh, representative land animal kinds in Noah's family. And yet this ark was much larger than needed just for these animals in this family. And so just as Noah and his family had to go through the door to be saved, so others could have gone through that door to be saved. In fact, after the ark was loaded, it stood for seven more days before God himself shut the door. Seven more days of grace. And I have no doubt that Noah preached from that doorway, imploring people to come in and be saved. Noah's ark is actually a picture of salvation in Christ as he is the door through which we need to go to be saved for all eternity as Jesus said in John 10 9. 
We all need to be reminded that we sinned in Adam. We committed high treason against the God of creation. And God is holy. God is pure. God is completely without sin. A holy God has to judge sin, but in his judgment, he also shows infinite mercy. And when God judged sin with death in Genesis 3.19, he also promised a savior in Genesis 3.15. See, God himself in the person of the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, stepped into history, fully God, fully man, to be a man so he could pay the penalty for our sin in our place. And through the shedding of his blood, he offers the free gift of salvation to all who will repent and believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. And furthermore, the Bible reveals to us that the rainbow is a symbol of Christ in Ezekiel 1, 26-28. In Revelation 4, 2-3, John saw Christ clothed with a cloud and a rainbow on his head. Bible scholar John Gill uh, notes this concerning the rainbow. As it has in a variety of beautiful colors, it may represent Christ, who is full of grace and truth, and fairer than the children of men. It may be considered as a symbol of peace and reconciliation by him, whom God looks unto and remembers the covenant of his grace he has made with him and his chosen ones in him, and who is the rainbow round about the throne of God and the way of access unto it. And so the next time you see a rainbow, remember that God judges all sin. He judged the world with a global flood at the time of Noah. And yet we need to say that the Lord is merciful. And he has made a covenant of grace with Noah and the animals that he would never again judge with a worldwide flood. And not only that, but the rainbow as a symbol of Christ, it reminds us that he is the mediator between man and God and that those who receive the free gift of salvation are presented faultless before their creator on the basis of uh, the person and work of Christ. That is, God declared those redeemed who have trusted in Christ alone. They are clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That is, for the redeemed, the wrath of God towards sin was satisfied on the cross, paid in full by the shed blood of the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. As John Gill puts it, though it is a bow, yet without arrows, and it is not turned downwards towards the earth, but upwards towards heaven, and so is a token of mercy and kindness, and not of wrath and anger. See, last thoughts here today. We need to take the meaning of the rainbow back, and we need to use it to tell the world of the mercy and kindness of our Creator and of our Savior and Lord Jesus, as we see exemplified in the life, the death, the resurrection, uh, even the ascension, and the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and may God bless you. Until tomorrow, take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.